This episode of Commentary, Trek Stars, is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 15 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. Today is Part 2 in our series on J.J. Abrams, looking at his feature films as a director, where we are going to be looking at his first movie, Mission Impossible 3. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And we are joined today by Tisto of Tisto.com. How's it going, Tisto? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Now, um, you're you're in the middle of a Mission Impossible series on on your show, right? That's right. Yeah, I did uh, Mission Impossible commentary, and, and then you helped me out with a Mission Impossible two commentary, and I'm about to do a Mission Impossible three commentary, and then eventually a Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. It'd be, it'd be four, right? Yes, Ghost Protocol, and then. Uh, Presumably five, whenever that comes out. Yeah, five is supposed to come out. Uh, I think Christmas Day, twenty fifteen. I like how I did. You like there how I pretended to forget uh, the name of the movie, and then I actually forgot the name of the movie. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> for, for 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 those people who don't know, I mean, your show is primarily audio commentaries or exclusively audio commentaries, right? Yes, if you can call it a podcast, yeah, it is a podcast where every episode is a audio commentary of a movie or television show. Yeah, yeah, and, and these are some really good audio commentaries. You know, very, very, you know, funny and fun, but also extremely well thought out and informative. Well, you um, try to actually talk about the movie that you're watching. Yeah, I, I which I feel is an error. I do, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just like trivia and stuff like that. Like, there's a lot of like hardcore analysis going on, which is, sure. is really solid. Yeah, so, it is. It is very solid. Yeah, so definitely go to tisto.com, t-y-s-t-o.com, and check out some of Tisto's stuff because it's great. Okay, my cat's running around like an idiot now, so. All right, so since we're talking about J.J. Uh, Abrams in general, uh, this, this series, Tisto, what, what are your thoughts on J.J. Abrams? Are you a fan? Have you seen his shows and his other movies, or, or not so much? Uh, I am a fan, I have to say. I did not get sucked into Lost. I kind of saw that that was uh, probably going to go down a rabbit hole that it could not get out of uh, very early on. But I did love Fringe, and stuck with it uh, to the very end, um, even though it kind of went down a rabbit hole of its own, but I think it kind of crawled out. Um, his movies, I think, have been more hit or miss for me, and I find them to be thrilling, generally speaking, but not always, um, somehow not always holding together very well, particularly logically. They weren't very good, in particular, all the ways that matter. <laughs> Well, what what about his Star Trek movies? Uh, did, did, were you a fan of Star Trek 09 and Star Trek Into Darkness? Um, it's weird. I, I, I'm a guy who absolutely loves a tight script that makes good sense. 
and that movie, no, nothing about it made any sense at all. And I still the first one or the he's talking one? about both the, the first one. Well, I haven't actually seen uh, Star Trek Into Darkness I, I, because I didn't care for Star Trek in the first place, so I, I haven't been uh, in a hurry to watch the second one. But uh, I've, I, nevertheless, I found it thrilling. I, I do find it entertaining. It's just not very good Star Trek. Okay, all right, fair enough. So, so this movie is um, Mission Impossible Three, like we said. It's uh, Abrams' first film. It came out in 2006. So, so the way that the story goes, apparently, is that J.J. Um, Abrams met Tom Cruise, who knows where, at a party or something like that. Those guys schmooze together all the time. You know it. Yeah, and, and, and they were talking, and they're talking about Alias or whatever, and, and Tom Cruise is like, hey, I haven't seen Alias yet. And J.J. was like, oh, well, I'll send you uh, seasons one and two. And Tom Cruise is like, all right, cool. And he watches them eventually. As I understand it, Katie Holmes was with him during this viewing experience. Well, maybe it was. Uh, I don't know if the timeline was lined up there. I think, I think that, that's how I heard the story. Okay, well, regardless. Mission Impossible 3, uh, for those who don't know, was initially going to be directed by Joe Carnahan. And it was going to be some, about something completely different. It was going to involve Blood Diamonds and Kenneth Branagh. I think Scarlett Johansson was in there somewhere. And basically this thing just completely fell apart. And then, sort of out of desperation, Tom Cruise is like, Hey, J.J., you're really good at making spy things. What would you think about making Mission Impossible 3? And J.J. said, That sounds like a great idea, but if I'm going to do it, I think probably the way to go about it, the way to go about, quote-unquote, saving this movie would be to start from scratch and just write a whole different movie and, and just start up things, you know, uh, on, on and go a completely different direction. It's the best way to save things. Yes. To not. Just throw them out I, the window. I agree. Yeah. So J.J. brought on... Um, Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi, who were two writers who had worked with him on Alias, and the three of them crafted this movie. And it came out in 2006, and everyone at the studio was very impressed by it, and impressed by how, you know, Abrams had essentially turned around a franchise in trouble. And they said, hey, we've got another franchise which is in trouble, and that's Star Trek. And uh, why don't you try to do what you just did with Mission Impossible, but with Star Trek? So that's kind of the origin, and, and one of the reasons why Mission Impossible 3, for better or worse, depending on your perspective, is uh, a really big piece of the Star Trek puzzle. Did, was Star Trek foundering at that moment? And that, did they actually have like a bad script that he threw out and made a worse one? Or how did that work? <laughs> No, they, Star Trek wasn't a thing at that point. You're, I mean, your version of the story is very pro-Abrams, and you're sort of ignoring <laughs> the business side of it. Well, I mean, the, like he, the business he had, side, the, the non-business side, in, whatever. He had been inside for a long time, and I he mean, was considered kind of... It, it is one a, of those a things... A staple, a standby. He's it, always been there. It, he, it, he was always working on scripts. He was always working on scripts. He had never really made his own movie. He had never really no, but written would, and shepherded his own movie. But he'd been credited with saving a lot of movies. Well, maybe. And but, but by he had never, saving, like, they still made money. But, but not on this, on this huge scale. But he was sort of known as a presence, and his work on TV was so um, well-received that uh, he was considered to be kind of a filmmaker, 
himself. I mean, like even so much so that um, I think the the commentary that that Abrams and Cruz do for this movie, you know, Cruz is like, oh, this is your first movie. You know, it's pretty good for your first movie. Or or he says that one of them kind of jokes about that. And then they sort of laugh like, yeah, this is your first movie, you know, as if like you've never done this before. When in reality, he has done this before. Well, yeah, like the in different places. No matter how big Tom Cruise is, he would not have been able to get J.J. Abrams to direct this movie if the studio did not already think that he was fairly safe. Right. and He was more of a producer than anything else, right? He'd, he'd done some producing of movies rather than directing. Well, yeah, he, but he, he had directed some for, directing. I mean, directed he, had, for TV. Yeah. he had just won the Emmy for directing uh, the pilot for Lost, and uh, which was the most expensive pilot in history and everything. So that was practically a movie uh, in and of itself. But... In terms of, like, did he save a script? Did he throw something out? I'm not really sure if he threw something out, but there was certainly another script which existed uh, prior to this that they were at one point planning on doing uh, for Star Trek, and it was involving the Romulan War. And it was written by Eric Gendrison, who wrote uh, Band of Brothers. But but as it is with a lot of behind-the-scenes studio politics stuff, we don't really know the entire story there. And largely, it's because there probably was a lot more going on. That Yeah, there, there, and there definitely was a lot more going on. Like, Rick Berman was on board as a producer, but later on, Genderson said that Berman was a producer in name only and literally did no work on that movie whatsoever. You know, things like that. So, There's I mean, the, who the, knows the, exactly. The studio politics thing, it's, it's half legend and half myth. Yeah. There's yeah. no actual history there. But it is it is interesting nonetheless. Um, but regardless, I don't think that that JJ had anything to do with that. I think what they said was, JJ, we would like you to do Star Trek. What are your ideas for Star Trek? And I think he said, well, I definitely want to do something with the original series crew. And then they went from there. But regardless, we're talking about what happened before <laughs> that, I guess, <laughs> which is Mission Impossible Three. Um, it came out in two thousand and six. And and it, it featured uh, a lot of uh, people who would later go on to to work on Star Trek, obviously. But we can get into that later. So now, before we actually talk about the movie itself, let's talk about Mission Impossible as a as kind of a franchise. Now, Tisto, you're pretty familiar with the original series. You've seen a good chunk of it. Yeah, the first couple of seasons, anyway. Yeah, it went on for several seasons. Um, but and changed quite a bit over time, but uh, it, it didn't change very much in terms of its structure. Mm-hmm. And and what what were your thoughts on it? It was terrific. I hadn't seen. I think I had only seen one episode of the TV show before I saw the first uh, movie in '96, and I knew that they had you know veered away from it quite a lot. But in revisiting the the TV show, I just fell in love with it uh, until I realized that really every episode was just too much of the same thing over and over again. Um, so I don't, uh, in, in principle, I don't, um, uh, blame Cruz and, and his coworkers for, for changing it up a bit, but I do blame them for making them too generic and too similar to each other, unfortunately, which we'll, I think we'll talk about. Okay. That's, that's an interesting take on it because, I kind of have the the opposite reaction to that, but uh, what from Mission Impossible? Yeah, really? Now, now I've I've seen um, I, I watched the pilot 
for the, for the original series uh, prior to this. And one of the things that, that I thought was kind of weird about it, and I'm, I don't know if this is just kind of a pilot, or I got the impression this is kind of how most of it goes, is it really is like there's a mission. We need to accomplish this mission. And now we're going to watch how they and see how they accomplish this mission. Yeah, the, the pilot. And that's, that's really like all there is to the, it. Yeah, it's the pilot, right? That, yeah. That's the one where they wear masks and they fool some guys and then they steal something, <laughs> I think, right? <laughs> oh, I get what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, like, was there anything in the way of like character or development or, or anything like that in this show? Um, not in the first couple of seasons, which is really too bad because there there were cast changes and you would expect that would be a great opportunity to to actually you know make good on the threat of the idea that the the secretary would disavow the team if something went wrong and so on and people could have got killed and then replaced but they didn't really do that yeah i mean it's from the time there wasn't a lot of character development in general i mean they they had character moments yeah, yeah. but you characters couldn't really change right yeah yeah so it's sort of i mean it's sort of a trap okay what about you, Max? You see some of the show? I've I've seen a lot of it, actually. Like, uh, it, I don't remember exactly when it happened, but at some point I discovered it in reruns when I was a kid, and I watched a big chunk of it. I think it might have been around the time they made that second one. Mm-hmm. Like in the 80s or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's when I started watching the original one. Uh, but, uh, I, I mean, I enjoyed it as much as a lot of other things, but, uh, like, what stuck out in my head was that it really was sort of like like it was the 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 main course of this show that you got every night was a twist and when you get the twist that's the same week after week it becomes really hard to call it a twist it became sort of like which one which one of these characters is going to turn out to be another person wearing a face that's not their face Mm-hmm. And that that was sort of a thing. It yeah. was a procedural, and yes, uh, like any police procedural, it can get old. Yeah. So moving on to to the movies, you know, in 1996, Paramount decided to uh, adapt Mission Impossible for the big screen, starring Tom Cruise and, and everything like that. Uh, and and the movies are, I think, probably what most people uh, today kind of a, a associate with Mission Impossible, for better or worse. Tista, what what are your thoughts on on the movies in general? Do you like them? Um, Correct answer. Right. Yes. Um, there are things I like about them, but especially the first couple. Um, I don't know. The first one I, I kind of don't like. The, the second one I like for weird reasons that I explained in the commentary we did. This one I kind of like. Almost, I almost completely like it, and the fourth one is okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Max? Um, I, 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 I don't really have very strong feelings about any of them. I mean, like two is actually kind of a mess, but it's a mess in a way that is sort of normal. Like I don't really consider it to be an outlier. It's sort of normal bad, like most action movies. It's bad. Um, the only problem with it is that the John Woo influence is a little silly because <coughs> kind of feels like John Woo is just sort of. Like, I mean, I don't know. It's like a it's like a weird reunion tour thing. Like he's going back on tour after being retired for twenty years, and it's like, look, you remember the guys with the guns pointing? Doves, at the remember the doves? I oh my god! It's like 
Ah, oh, this I love this. I like the original cut version though. This B side is weird. Like that's what it's like. It's it it feels very awkward. But aside from that, it's just a normal bad movie. Uh, and and Mission Impossible Three, I thought, wow, it's they sort of like mastered this format of like an action movie that sort of just exists and then is meaningless. Essentially, it's disposable, but like the the perfect disposable story. I mean, it's perfectly timed so that when you walk out of that room you're like that was thrilling and then five minutes later you have no idea what you were talking about because it left absolutely no impression on you except apparently for you oh yeah because i instantaneously moved on from that movie because you know it's kind of simple and that's about it and that's okay there are plenty of bad movies that are just bad because they're kind of simple I think there's a lot going on beneath the surface, but we'll get into that in a second. For me personally, with with the movies in general, and this is sort of like where my knowledge of, of Mission Impossible uh, comes from, I, you know, I've always been a fan of the movies. I've always been very excited whenever a new one comes out. I went to see the first one at the sneak preview the night before it came out and everything. Been a fan ever since. And one of the things which I sort of love about them is, uh, unlike a lot of um, movie franchises where... They have a, a, a cohesive style and, and, and everything like that, and they feel like they're all part of one giant movie. Each one of these is directed by a different person, and each one like unabashedly um, assumes the style of that particular director and doesn't um, even necessarily try to match or fit in with what has come before. It's almost like an anthology series of movies with this this one character who is quote-unquote the same, even though I really do think, especially if you're looking at, like, the first and the second one, it's essentially a completely different character with just the same name played by the same guy. But... Uh, <laughs> Be, because of I that, don't know what who who you're refuting right now, but I don't think it's anyone in the room. I'm agreeing. Well, I'm, I'm sure. not, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So so um, you know, Mission Impossible Three. You know, I was I was really looking forward to, and when I saw it, it actually did um, blow me away. I, I was very very impressed by it. Now uh, let's let's move into to Mission Impossible Three itself and uh, sort of get into. Let's move the, into it. The heart of that. Um, like, like I was saying, I, I was a fan of the series, and I was also a fan of J.J. Abrams. I, I had seen all of Alias, and I was very impressed by that. And this was during that, that weird year of my life where I decided to not watch any trailers or see, read anything about movies, just go into everything blind. So I hadn't seen any of like the big trailer moments, which you know everyone else had sort of already been impressed by. I was sort of experiencing it all fresh. Or annoyed by. And 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 I hadn't. Re- I didn't really have any uh, um, expectations aside from my love of the Mission Impossible movies and my love of J.J. Abrams. This is uh, the year of the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Da Vinci uh, Code, yeah. um, Casino yeah, Royale, Casino. the first Casino Royale. Casino well, the, Royale, the, the, yes. The, the, the new Bond. Um, mm-hmm. Cars. Okay, so it wasn't all bad. X-Men 3. Okay, maybe that's <laughs> wrong. Superman Returns. 
yeah, Superman sure. Returns. Yeah, yeah, that was that was the big. But um, you know, yeah, I remember. You know, Casino Royale was a big one, and, and Clerks Two was the other thing that I was really looking forward to. Yep, those were the two major hits of the summer. Those were the two. No, those those were the my, the ones that I was really looking forward to. Anyway, um, but regardless, so so yeah, when I saw this, I was. I, I was really impressed by it uh, for for a lot of reasons. One, you know, just as far as the sort of uh, spectacle of the summer blockbuster, I think that it, it it did a very good job of of capturing what I love about you know seeing movies on the big screen and and everything like that. And and um, I thought the action set pieces were really well done and everything. But I also think that it uh, did a really good job of telling this sort of small personal story um, through or in the big uh, action movie genre, which is is something which Abrams seems to do really well. I mean, he did it again, I think, in, in Star Trek 09 and everything like that. But I, I also think that it's interesting as a first movie because it really does seem to build on what he uh, had been developing in his television work and on Alias. It's, it's a very interesting companion piece to Alias in, in that, you know, Alias, and they talked about this a lot of times, in the same way that Fringe is sort of an update of the X-Files, Alias, mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, was an update of Mission Impossible. You know, it had the same sort of formula, double agents, you know, and whatever secret agents undercover in disguise uh trying to pull off these crazy heists you know week after week but like in in the process of the update you know and obviously there was like a 40 year gap in between the two or a 35 year gap you know the medium had obviously advanced and the the storytelling in the medium had advanced and it was a continuing storyline and you know, kind of similar to, from what I understand, you know, Abrams's first series, you know, which is Felicity, is very sort of character driven, <laughs> and, and has a lot of it, it has to do with yeah. a lot of you know, sort of like uh, family relationships and stuff like that, and time and, travel, and and that and that storyline is to me just as interesting as all of the uh, the spy stuff, and and sort of what I, what I love about. Um, this movie and and Alias and and their connection is, you know, Alias is an update of Mission Impossible. Then they hire the guy who did Alias to make Mission Impossible 3, and essentially in Mission Impossible 3, what he's doing is making a big screen version of Alias. You know, there were a lot of elements from Alias which were brought into Mission Impossible 3. that, and Uh, he's also kind of making a remake of Mission Impossible 1. In a sense, is, I guess, a, yeah. I mean, Some unfortunate similarities. This narrative is wildly <laughs> distorted from actual history. Well, and, and, well I, I mean, mean like, this, is, this is what I'm seeing as, the as, winners a, as write an the observer. The history books, Max. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. I mean, the, not now. So I guess well, it doesn't matter what actually happened. Well, well let, me, let, me, let me get through this and then... So I guess JJ's won. I mean, I to me. So, so it doesn't matter. To me, he has won. He basically didn't even show up for the battle. To me, he has won. But uh, you know, l- let me let me get through this, and then you know. Uh, no, he's won. I mean, me. he's won. I mean, he's running it. He's 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 become the king. I think he's now. already making. Okay. It his, doesn't matter. His own version of saving Mr. Banks, in which he plays himself, doing exactly this. It's a it's a semi documentary where he he decides on the history. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's, that's that's fair enough. 
So okay, let me let me get through this this sort of what what my interpretation of events or analysis of this thing is, and then um, you guys can tell me how I'm wrong. With with Mission Impossible Three, you know what what we're seeing is you know things like uh, the family storyline and uh, you know dealing with having a relationship when you're you know undercover and and when you're in this you know um, this lifestyle which does not permit that. Um, you know, it's 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 dealing with with that those types of issues. I mean, I just watched the pilot for Alias again, and I was uh, struck by how similar the two storylines were. They go in different you know directions, and and by by creating those those similarities and the similarities to in terms of the uh, the sort of um, procedural elements as well, I think what this ends up doing is uh, for one thing reinforcing the sort of uh, individual movie auteur theory which which is present in the mission impossible movies but it also um sort of does a good job of um showcasing the strengths and weaknesses of television versus film you know and i've always talked about this and it's like there are some things which tv does better for example telling uh storylines you know and in character uh driven pieces and stuff like that Whereas, of course, there's some things which the big screen does better, like, you know, huge action set pieces and everything. And I think it's cool to see the same basic story told by the same guy in each of these two media. And and that type of stuff, you know, really excites me. And um, it's one of the reasons why I think that Mission Impossible 3 is the best film of 2006. So, okay, Tisto, uh, why, why do you... Uh, say that this is kind of an unfortunate remake of Mission Impossible 1. Uh, my biggest problem with with the first three films here is that uh, in all three of them, the bad guy is an insider. It, that was very prevalent at the time. The, the, the bad guy was an insider in uh, GoldenEye um, and uh, some of the other uh, following James Bond movies. In Skyfall, he's an insider who has come back to haunt them. And it's uh, it's really bizarre that that they would make um, Jim Phelps the bad guy of the first movie when he was obviously the hero of the TV show, and then in the second movie or in the third movie rather come back to that and and basically do that same thing again like let's have the his boss be the bad guy and let's have even more boss stuff uh, in here. Um, it, it's a really strange and unfortunate uh, uh, way to I, to go about making a movie that is you're you're trying to be different every time by hiring a different director with different styles i don't i also don't think that that was intentional i mean every every time there was they made one of these there was talk of another one being made by the same people and then something fell apart and they went a different way that is true but so i don't think that they ever thought like let's do it different each time i think every time it was like that fell completely apart Right, right. No, I, I, I think you're, you're right about that. You know, I mean, they, they may have, because I do remember them saying like, oh, yeah, John Woo, we're hoping that he comes back for Mission Impossible 3. But I like the fact that they didn't do like what they did with Brett Ratner on X-Men 3, where it's like, okay, Brett Ratner, now do your best to be um, Brian Singer. Brian yeah. Singer. And it's like, no, you can't do that. You've got to let Brett Ratner be Brett Ratner, you know? Really? <laughs> yeah. We don't have to do anything. The other, the other part of the thing that bothers me is that in this movie, like in the first movie, they decide, oh, in order to solve this, we have to actually steal the thing the bad guy wants and give it to him. 
and then we'll, you know, we'll track him, and then we'll get him. Mm-hmm. It's the same as the first movie. I guess that's true, yeah. Um, but those are, to me, like surface-level comparisons and not really sort of what the movie is about <laughs> or anything like that. And, and, yeah. and, and I think that, that you know, sort of the, the heart of the story um, is, is really strong in Mission Impossible it's, 3. And, and I you're, think and that you're talking the about way the, ro- that the romance. It's, yeah. it's Mushin Impossible, yes. Also, you know, I, I think that uh, the story is told a lot better. You know? uh, oh, that I agree with. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Now, now Tisto, in general, do, do you still like this movie? I mean, it sounds like you think it's the best of the four. I, I, Is that I think I do, yeah. I think that it's the best of the four. I was thrilled with it in the theater because I was really quite lukewarm on the first two. Um, and I think in true J.J. Abrams style, it's absolutely thrilling. And credit to uh, Orsi and Kurtzman, who I don't care for uh, in, uh, in a lot of the time, um, I think that the story pretty much holds uh, holds water. I think Max is correct in that it doesn't amount to anything. You walk out, you go, I can't, I can't remember the plot. Remember, I remember they did some stuff. They were getting they were, that thing, yeah. and there was that guy. Party. I remember he wasn't particularly unattractive. Yeah, but but you remember you know the the story be, between him and his wife right That's, sure oh yes. it's so intricate <laughs> see this is the thing like this is the same criticism in Star Trek it's like you're like they did a great job with this this personal story and I'm like yeah it's I mean it's it's a five minute story it's not complicated or deep it's actually kind of cliche like this has been around for a long time it's been done a million times and the idea that you're saying that this thing that is kind of rote is what makes this thing so good when the thing in question is actually kind of sort of just fast paced flashy action. Well, I think, I think there's a give and take there. You know, I think that, 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 that story, you know, gives this fast paced flashy action movie heart and gives you something to think about and everything like that. I don't think it, but that's the thing. It doesn't give you something to think about. Well, I mean, I, I would disagree. I think that it they does. Re- they try really um, hard. I mean, Luther talks again and again about how, you know, we can't have real relationships and, and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, I mean, look, here's the thing. It didn't work in Attack of the Clones. It mm. didn't work in literally every time this has ever been done. It's, 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 it's a simple thing. And, and, I don't have a problem with this plot line existing because, I mean, like, it's a, it's a reasonable thing. It happens in the world. This conflict occurs. But it's not, like, there's no, there's no magic here. There's no revelation. There's not even, like, a particularly earnest depiction of the conflict. It's, that is the thing that makes him not just a, a bipedal organism who can fire guns. That's like essentially the only function that it has in this movie, and it's simple, and like it is true of. I mean, it's true of all of J.J. Abrams' movies, except for probably the one that most people find most frustrating: Super Eight. There's actually a little bit more going on there. Okay, well, I mean, I disagree, or maybe I'm simple-minded, but regardless, I, I do think that that there is uh, a, a lot of sort of you know just the the conflict there. Which is presented in in the uh, in the story, the idea of sort of um, having to to take it down to a more pedestrian level, um, uh, balance your your work life with your personal life, and and trying to set priorities and realizing what's truly important and all this stuff. I think that that's all you know perfectly valid, and I like the fact that unlike 
most movies which deal with this subject matter. I like the fact that this one is told through giant action set pieces, which are really, really well-crafted and fun to watch. Okay, see, that's the thing. I think that those giant action set pieces, um, like like in, in any action movie, I mean, like I've seen a million action movies, and I can tell you this, like no matter how well-crafted they are, they are boring if it is not motivated. See, and, like, there is a huge amount of, of unmotivated action sequences in most action movies. That, that may be true. In, and, in this one, I don't think that that's true. And, and I think that there is something to be said for, you know, the idea of action movies as storytelling and each uh, action um, set piece being its own mini-movie with its own, you know, story arc and everything like that. You know, I mean, that's something that you hear people talk about all the time and how you know, action filmmakers are, are actually very good storytellers. They're just telling, you know, different, uh, or telling different types of stories or stories in different ways, you know. And, and I think that if you, if you do look at that, I mean, it, it works really well. There have been many times where just because of the admiration for the craft, regardless of what's going on in the rest of the story, I can kind of take this kind of like it sounds you need to take uh, an episode of of the original series of Mission Impossible and just say like okay let's watch them perform this heist let's see the mechanics of it and how it works and everything like that how are they going to get um, Felicity out of this uh, warehouse or whatever it is in Germany they cut her hair yeah there are three of those aren't there and uh, in fact there are four of those because we have we have that Part where they try to rescue Felicity. Mm-hmm. We have the heist of the briefcase where they they uh, uh, sting uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman himself. Yeah. Uh, there, once things go bad, uh, Tom Cruise has to escape from IMF itself, and then we have the the finale. Um, wait, there's another one, isn't there? Because we go to Shanghai. Yeah, there's uh, the Shanghai to, thing. You where... skipped the dangling. And the um... no, that's the that's the the Vatican one. They have to heist the rabbit's foot itself, and then in okay. in Shanghai, and then we have the uh, actual finale of the uh, attack. Uh, oh, I got it confused on... with two. <laughs> oh, 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 after the trade, <laughs> yeah. So there's there's actually five episodes mm-hmm. of the TV show in in this movie, which is better than either of the first two where it had zero or perhaps one episode. Yeah. You'd argue. Well, this and, is and one of the things three that three is the first time that they ever had anything other than Ethan Hunt doing everything. Right. Yes. Yeah. Which and is, then, which was so weird because I did not remember that they were like always a giant group of talented weirdos. But yes. like when I was watching three, I was like, Oh yeah, that was kind of a thing. So, uh, and <laughs> Everybody had a job. Yeah. I forgot about it. And that was something that I was going to ask you about, Tisto. But before we do, let me just say that, yeah, in, in terms of there being more action in this than the other two, like I remember seeing a, a quote from Kurtzman and Orsi, I think prior to when this movie came out, when they were talking about how, you know, they being the screenwriters were sort of uh, really big into making sure that this movie was well written. And they talked about how um, even though this movie has... A lot of action in it and it in fact has more action sequences than the first two movies put together um, they wanted to be absolutely certain that um, all of the action sequences advanced the the story or the characters or you know the plot or whatever in in some manner can you imagine I mean like like 20 years ago it's, it would be absurd that that would be said well because like 
Unless, unless you were talking about a uh, a musical, in which yeah. case they would say yeah. every song has to advance the plot. Right. Yeah, but <laughs> the, doesn't the idea even that you in singing in the rain. The idea that you have to point out, no, we're going to try to make our action sequences matter. Right, it's so sad. But that's that's it's the nature of so sad. It's the nature of the. Uh, we're going to try to hit that minimum quality level. We're going to mm-hmm. clear that mm-hmm. bar. We're gonna we're gonna make it not. Utter nonsense. But they, but I, I think they succeeded. Oh yeah, but, they did. But regardless, they cleared that bar. Regard, regardless of that, um, they are not the worst thing possible. Now, now, Tisto, getting back to what we were just talking about a second ago, um, do you feel that you know, with the inclusion of the the larger team and and everything like that, and the the, the heists being presented in the way that they are, that this is, um, at least up until this point, the the closest version of uh mission impossible to the original series out of out of the the movies to be sure yeah especially the the vatican sting where the the the, the it really becomes a procedural of we're watching them uh accomplish this little bit where they get the the briefcase and make off with it that's that's plays beautifully uh against the tv show yeah okay um, it's like Ghost Protocol. Also. That's pretty cool. I, I, yeah, I was going to say, Ghost yeah. Protocol too. All right. Um, one, time, yeah. one, one last thing. Um, it should be noted that due to the fact that uh, Mission Impossible 3 in a lot of ways was uh, um, one of the, the factors which, which got Abrams the job on Star Trek and the fact that this was his first movie and, and the crew that he assembled seemed to gel together really well, there are tons of people who worked on Mission Impossible 3, who would then go on to, to work on the, the two new movies. Um, Star Trek movies. Star Trek movies, yes. Kurtzman and Orsi, obviously, uh, were the writers. Um, Dan Mindel, or Mindel, who, who did the uh, cinematography, he would shoot, he shot all of J.J.'s movies, including the Star Wars Episode Seven. And uh, he shot the Star Trek movies as well. Scott Chambliss, the production designer, who actually came from uh, Alias. Um, Mary Jo Markey and Marianne Brandon, the two editors who also came from, from Alias. Uh, Michael Giacchino came from Alias, too. The music, yeah. Anyway, so Tisto, <laughs> and any final thoughts on Mission Impossible 3? Uh, I admire the way that... Uh that J.J. Uh, Abrams has committed himself to looking like a racer head. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Oh. What, what about you, Max? Uh, I mean, like, my main problem with this movie is that it's kind of disposable. I mean, it's it's basic, it's an action movie. I mean, I would say that it's better than Expendables, but, um, yeah, that's it. Okay. Uh, for, for for my final thoughts, I guess I would just say that uh, I, I do love this movie. Um, in, in a lot of ways, I think that it's superior to Star Trek 09, although I do think Star Trek 09 is the better movie. Um, but it, I, I really responded to it um, for, for all the reasons that I mentioned before. But, but um, yeah, definitely, definitely would recommend this movie. All right. So, Tisto, um, where can people find you on the Internet? You can find me over at Tisto, T-Y-S-T-O dot com. Cool. And be sure to head over there to, to check out some stuff. And, uh, yeah, Mission Impossible commentaries. You can listen to a commentary for this movie probably in a few weeks, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. All right, well, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yes, this And you're uh, welcome back anytime. Cool, Ben. Well, it's been fun talking to Tisto about Mission Impossible 3. 
But that's not the only thing we're talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Everything that we do has to exist inside of this little box. This and, window, yeah, if you will. Right. And you can you can do whatever you want inside there, but once you step outside, you know, it's the real world. Earl Grey. That's, you know what I mean? And then Star Trek V is all about crapping all over the rest of the movies. That just came out. <laughs> Axonar, the official podcast. When you're in the edit bay, as soon as you put one image next to another, it's this instant gratification. It's this great creative jolt which happens every time you start juxtaposing your images and when you start seeing things fall into place, it's it's really galvanizing and it's really thrilling, actually. And I love feeding off that kind of, of energy. The Ready Room. Well, you know, time is not really linear, Char. So the monkey, he's always been there and he always will be. <laughs> I take the Janeway stance on time travel. It gives me a headache. The Orb. Batman also creates a contingency plan for all the other superheroes just in case something goes wrong with them. So, it So what does he do for the Wonder Twins, for example? Like how is he going to take them out if Um, I think he just separates them eternally so they okay. can't smack their hands together. To the journey. We have like a whole bunch of geek aliens like they're wearing their own superhero t-shirts. They're eating <laughs> hot pockets. They have headphones oh on and they're all in their own little, you know, 24th century room. But they're like, dude, dude, I totally just pwned the Voyager. Commentary, Trek stars. And underlines the goal of Prexy Gail Berman to re-energize the pipeline while revitalizing the PAR brand with top tier talents such as Abrams. I love Trace. You have no idea what you're saying at this point. Warp 5. He can put her mind at ease about these kinds of things because he can just, you know, you know how Trip is. Like, you know, let's have some catfish and, like, just hang out. (laughs) Continuing mission. We actually spoke with uh, CBS legal team, and uh, that was one of the things that we that we had told them is that we all of our visuals were all original scenes all of our animation was going to be original all of our music would be original so we would not be stealing any content from the original era mm-hmm. and and they liked that a lot literary treks and i just love that because it is very true you know picard in some ways kind of has that yodaness about him where he will kind of speak in a riddle and he wants you to figure it out and that's what else is happening on trek.fm Check out these shows to get in on the Daily Trek Talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, the Windows Podcast Directory for Xbox and Zune. Or you can stream them from the website. Just visit trek.fm for Podcast Directory to get all the links. So we have a new review today on iTunes. It's from Etten Skivel, I think is how you pronounce it. Or maybe it's Et and Skivel. I don't know. Anyway, Etten Skivel. They write, an actual resource. They say, uh, while I've only recently found Trek.fm, I've found Commentary Trek Stars to be a resource for our homeschool experience. I didn't even know Tabletop existed before Mike and Max discussed it. Now we own Ticket to Ride as a U.S. geography resource. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Etten Skivel. Um, we really do appreciate the feedback. Um, it's kind of terrifying to think that, that uh, we're being used 
uh, as a resource to uh, teach the youth of America. Um, perhaps we need to step up our game a bit more because that's a little too much responsibility for, for us to handle. But um, uh, hopefully uh, we, we haven't scarred your children too much. Uh, and, and, and thanks again. We really do appreciate the review. And now Et and Skivel here, you know, they, they've, they've got it going on because since they reviewed us on iTunes, they're going to be entered into our drawing for um, some of these, these prizes that we have coming up on August 17th. For, for those people who don't know, uh, we're having a review promotion right now going on on Trek FM where if you go to iTunes or Stitcher, uh, you can leave a review for any or all of our podcasts, and for each review, you will be entered into uh, a drawing to win some really cool uh, Star Trek prizes. You know, you could win uh, a season of Star Trek on DVD or Blu-ray of your choice. You could win um, uh, one of the, the little Eagle Moss ships uh, from Japan, complete with a, an authentic Japanese magazine. You could win uh, um, a, a set of our alien art prints or badges uh, from uh, Trek FM that Toba Ushi did. Or now, if you review the uh, Axonar podcast, you could win a set of three beautiful embroidered patches, compliments of Alec Peters, the creator of Axonar. And the deadline has been extended to uh, Sunday, August 17th, so there's still time uh, to... to place your 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 entry into the contest so so here's the thing here's what you do right you review the show or any of the shows in itunes and or stitcher you can also review the master feed that counts as an entry even if you've uh, reviewed all the other shows Um, each review will get you an entry into the drawing Um, so what you do is after you you give us the review on itunes or stitcher then you go to www.trek.fm slash review and you complete the form there okay um the deadline is midnight pacific time on sunday august 17th so uh be sure to enter and uh may the odds be forever in your favor whatever they say in hunger games before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps bring us commentary Trek stars to you each and every week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers, and even some of the most famous Star Trek books, like Federation, Audible has something for everyone. They've even got Tom Cruise, an unauthorized biography by Andrew Morton. It's narrated by John Hinch, and uh, it says, In 2006, Forbes magazine ranked Tom Cruise as the most powerful celebrity in the world. That's the year that Mission Impossible 3 came out. With three Golden Globe Awards, three Academy Award nominations, and 27 films with an average box office gross of nearly $100 million, People Magazine's choice for The Sexiest Man Alive in 1990 is unquestionably one of the biggest movie stars of our time. 
and you can get this book for free on Audible since you listen to Trek FM. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting commentary, Trek Stars, and trek.fm. And lastly, there's one more way you can directly help us keep commentary Trek stars coming to you each week, and that is by adopting some aliens. Well, illustrations anyway. If you go to trek.fm slash donate, you'll find eight original alien illustrations by Toba Ushi, who does most of the artwork you see on our website. They're available as both badges and art prints, and there are different contribution levels for you to choose from. Just let us know which you would like and in which format. Again, you'll find them at trek.fm slash donate, and your support helps us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring the show to you each week. As always, you can find us right here on trek.fm doing commentary Trek stars, and you can also find me on trek.fm doing standard orbit with Drew, and you can find both of us on our website, commentarytrackstars.com, where we do commentary track stars off topic with Brandon. And you can email us at comtrackstars at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at comtrackstars. Well, that's it for Mission Impossible 3. We'll be back next week to discuss J.J. Abrams' third movie, Super 8. <laughs> <laughs>